This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to this week's Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth. Joining me to talk through the huge amount of market news that's been around this week is Danny Hewson. Hi, Dan. We've got quite a mix coming up. Japan's out of recession. The countdown is on to see if US politicians can actually agree to a deal to raise the debt ceiling and Eurozone inflation's heading in the wrong direction. I'll take a look at why Watches of Switzerland shares fell after its latest update. Home Depot has warned that consumers are getting increasingly inflation weary and JD Sports is targeting a billion pounds profit for its next trading year. Laura Souter has been chatting to Sunil Krishnan, head of multi-asset funds at Aviva Investors, about what he's focused on at the moment, plus warnings from the FCA that 11 million people in the UK are struggling to pay their bills. Well, let's kick things off by looking at the markets. So over the last week, uh, the FTSE 100 in the UK and the S&P 500 in the US been stuck in the mud, just like they have been for most of May. But the real story is Japan. The two main indices there have done fantastically well this year. So Topics is up 12.4% year to date and now is hitting a 33-year high. And the Nikkei is up 14.4% year to date. And there's sort of several reasons why Japanese stocks are uh, sort of attracting investors this year. Um, I think, first of all, Investors sort of looking at the US and thinking, well, you know, there's signs of recession there. Uh, we're sort of, you know, the stock market seems to be, um, you know, there's lots of, lots of uncertainty. So where else in the world might uh, we want to be parking our money? Well, if you look at Asia, um, lots of people have been burnt by investing in China over the last few years. Um, and so thinking, oh, you know, again, where else can I go to put my money? Well, if you think about China is reopening its economy after having you know, relaxing these, these strict COVID rules recently, um, they've got a tailwind there. But actually, lots of people buy goods in China from Japan. They also, Chinese people love to tra- travel to Japan as well. So, uh, you know, actually, Japan is now seen as sort of perhaps a safer way to get exposure to Chinese growth, but with less geopolitical risk. Um, and then if you layer on top the fact that Japanese companies have been more shareholder friendly, they've got better corporate governance standards in the last few years um, and valuations are still cheap. So all these sort of factors are sort of combining to to put Japan back on the on the radar for investors again. Um, and so far, you know, you know, shareholders being pretty rewarded if you've had money in this part of the world. Sadly, Dan, the upbeat news really is not filtering through to global markets. They're being weighed down by a ticking clock that potentially could see the US default if it doesn't raise its debt ceiling. I'm going to preface all of this by saying there's no way that politicians are going to deliberately tank the US economy. In fact, we've even had House Speaker Republican Kevin McCarthy coming out today. We're recording this Wednesday lunchtime saying he definitely thinks a deal can be done, but it's tight. And it's tight because they're using this cliff edge as really political, um, the ability to generate what they want. It's political capital. So let's start with what the debt ceiling is. Here's a fun fact. It's been changed 78 times since 1960. Currently stands at 
$31.3 trillion, which is just incredible. So effectively, the US has hit its debt ceiling, which means that if it wants to keep spending, it needs to borrow more. It's kind of as if you have a credit card and you've reached your limit and you go to your credit card provider and they give you a little bit more. However, the Republicans say, if we lift the debt ceiling, then we don't want you just to spend more. So they want cuts to federal spend on things like unemployment benefits. They want those to come with increased work requirements. But as I say, the clock is ticking because if a deal isn't done by the 1st of June, then the U.S will default on some debts. No more money can be borrowed, no salaries of military or federal employees can be paid, no social security checks sent out. Now, the last time it came this close was back in 2011. At the time, it led to a downgrade of the US credit rating, a sell-off in stocks and increased borrowing costs. Because of course, If the US defaults, it undermines the faith that it can pay its bills on time. And that would unleash massive turbulence on financial markets. We had uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen warning a default would threaten the economic recovery that the US has seen since COVID. It would plunge the country into recession. Millions of jobs will be lost. The housing market will collapse. Complete Armageddon. So, Already, we're seeing risk appetite down just on the off chance that politicians really do hit stalemate and go over maybe by a day or so. It is incredibly unlikely. But the cost of insuring exposure to US debt has hit record highs and stock markets are looking pretty subdued. At the same time, we've got news from the Eurozone that inflation's actually heading the wrong way. Now, this isn't year-on-year inflation. This is month-on-month inflation, which is heading the wrong way. So what we've seen is um, an increase in Some countries are really seeing inflation at highs and it's food inflation. We know all about that here in the UK that is causing things to pop. And core inflation is still incredibly high in the eurozone, which is why, of course, the expectation is that there will be at least two more rate hikes from the European Central Bank. But it is sort of souring the mood with investors today. Well, should we talk about some individual company news? Um, Watches of Switzerland has definitely caught my eye. I mean, Danny, did you during during lockdown? Obviously, I know that we all sort of were bored at home thinking about things to buy. Did you buy yourself a fancy watch? I did not. I don't wear a watch. <laughs> do you wear a watch? Well, some, sometimes I do. Yeah, but I, I think much to people's surprise, lots of people watches during lockdown watches of switzerland uh has done did incredibly well um but like many companies in this situation investors sort of looked say 18 months ago and started to sort of question well coming out of the pandemic you know we've seen quite a lot of companies do you know you know seen uh demand pull forward you know and, and then would they see sort of growth start to to moderate so shares in Watch of Switzerland have been sort of drifting for, for 18 months. And now we've had a trading update, which kind of confirms it by saying that, you know, yes, they're still growing, but growth is going to be a bit slower in the future. Um, and of course, you know, 
and this is sort of people saying, you know, okay, therefore, is it one of these, you know, it's a COVID winner, but now what's it like back in more normal times? Well, you know, Watcher Switzerland says you know, demand is is continues to be bigger than supply. So that's a sort of a, a plus in its favour. Um, but if you look other parts of the industry, you know, going back a couple of months, there's there's um Richmond owns this platform called Watchfinder, and it was flagging that secondhand luxury watches were actually being falling in price. Um, because I think one of the things that's happened is you know, yes, people have bought watches over the last few years as an investment, but I think some people are now sort of, you know, selling them off again. Um, and so they're flooding the market with supply. And one of the things that Watchfinder was suggesting is actually this is partly to do with the collapse of the crypto market. So if you think that people who got rich off things like Bitcoin um, shooting up in value a few years ago, well, what's the obvious thing that you would do to sort of say that you know, I'm going to show off my we uh, my wealth? You know, you you buy a flash watch, don't you? So I wonder whether now that crypto prices have come back down, some of these buyers essentially been taken out of the market um, and are sort of you know, getting rid of the things. So. Yeah, these businesses they they go through cycles, ups and downs, and you know, long term people still think that watches are, are that can be good investments, but um, it's just another example of a company that sort of um, perhaps sort of tripped up a bit, uh, and then so the market's now going to be watching it a lot closer to see um, is it going to get into trouble or is this sort of just a short term issue but but continuing on the luxury side of things um okay so danny so you didn't buy a watch during lockdown but did you buy diamonds <laughs> <laughs> maybe cubic zirconia yeah <laughs> well there's an interesting things happening in the diamond sector so polished diamond prices are down by seven percent this year or 23 percent lower than their peak in march last year so demand is sort of obviously being hit by um, so uncertainties about the global economy. There's also a rise in synthetic diamonds. So rough diamond prices did start to pick up earlier this year on the Chinese reopening, but that sort of is starting to fizzle out. So it's interesting. We have in the luxury goods sector, people have thought um, everything's fine because these, you know, the, the typical person who would buy luxury goods is not really affected by rising inflation. They've got so much money, and you know, what what's another ten percent on the cost of um you know you know a bottle of rosé or or whatever it is that they um they have on, on you know, to to enjoy themselves? But um <laughs> yeah, so so luxury goods in general have been holding up well. But you know, are these now some early signs that things are sort of perhaps hit the peak? So ultimately, I think if you're if you're thinking about getting married, uh, perhaps a good time to get an engagement ring. Diamond prices coming off, so there is one good thing to come out of this. I'll tell you what I did buy during lockdown, and that was outdoor furniture, although for a while it was incredibly difficult to get hold of uh, patio sets because there was such a long lead time because, of course, everyone was wanting that extra space in their garden. Did you buy anything like that? No, I did not. I'm afraid. Too busy no. buying watches and diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> Much more your speed. Um, well, what, what is happening with um, in the United States, certainly, is that uh, customers, maybe they've already got those things. Maybe they've already bought patio sets, but certainly they are now becoming increasingly inflation weary. They just don't have the discretionary income to be able to spend on things like that. They're not moving house quite as much. And that is having a huge impact on massive U.S. retailer Home Depot. 
Home Depot, as they call it in the States. It is my brother-in-law's favorite place. He can spend ages in there because he loves doing those sort of uh, DIY jobs. But although the company did manage to beat expectations, it did have a really gloomy outlook. And in fact, just in, in the last few minutes, we've had an update from Target, which seems to be almost a carbon copy of what Home Depot are saying, that um, the expectation is that inflation will impact sales over the rest of the year. It was interesting because we also had some um, consumer in, in sales data, retail sales data from the US yesterday as well, saying that there'd been a sort of uptick in car sales because manufacturers like Tesla were lowering the sticker price. So people were more interested in that, but also that a lot of people were spending on holidays and experiences rather than stuff. And that is just going to have an impact on retailers going forward, not just in the US, but also here in the UK. However, trainer sales don't seem to have been impacted that much. And in fact, JD Sports, trainer seller extraordinaire, has uh, said today that it expects profits to top £1 billion for the first time in the next financial year, next trading year for it. Um, I think the figure's a bit sort of arbitrary. Um, I don't know quite what it means because when you look at pre-tax profits for this year compared to last year, it's down significantly. And that is because, of course, like all retailers, JD Sports is being hit by costs. It is also spending a shed load of cash on expansion plans, um, looking to spend around $3 billion over the next five years in order to open nearly 2,000 stores globally. Um, of course, what we've seen is Regis Schultz taking over from Peter Cowgill last year, and he has really gone off all guns blazing. Um, JD Sports announced that it was um, going to take over um, Korea, the French um sporting goods manufacturer, just one of the deals it is looking to do in order to expand. But the one thing that JD Sports has in its arsenal is the fact that its consumer tends to be much younger and maybe they don't have all the household expenses that they have that a lot of people have to pay. So they've got a little bit more money to go at. And JD Sports size and the kind of deals that it's able to do with brands like Nike mean that it is quite competitive, but clearly still affected by a lot of the same issues that many retailers are affected by. Um, but, uh, you know, grand plans, a big number, certainly grabbed headlines. There's an amazing film I saw at the weekend called Air. She's on, oh, Amazon, I saw it. <laughs> on Amazon Prime about Nike trying to sign up Michael Jordan to um you know so they could become a sponsor and the creation of the air jordan trainers so as I say if you're if you're into your trainer stuff it's well worth a watch did you enjoy it i did enjoy it yeah matt damon and ben affleck together again a little bit um but it was totally fascinating just how that sort of sponsorship deal has really um you know gone from sort of teeny tiny to absolutely massive and and how michael jordan really smart mother in order to make sure that he grabbed uh, a chunk of the sales and not just got, you know, a bit of money for having his name associated with these trainers because he made the name, didn't he? 
I think it was $400 million in royalties every year from those trainer sales. <laughs> that's, that's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely just amazing. incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just wanted to mention quickly about commercial property. Um, we quite often refer to the Bank of America's monthly fund manager survey on the podcast. Um, so, so the Bank of America just goes and asks fund managers around the world, uh, what are they doing? What's in their portfolios and what are they thinking? And you know, this is really interesting that, that fund managers have cut their allocation to commercial real estate to the lowest level since the 2008 global financial crisis. So they're clearly worried about the impact of rising interest rates and falling demand on the sector. But um, I guess if you're a contrarian investor, is this a signal that um, actually so much bad news and sort of negativity is out there? Because I, I keep reading about companies uh, bringing staff back to work, saying that the, the working from home trend uh, has got to stop. And we had, uh, I mean, every week there is a, like a, a very large employer that comes out and so it says, okay, like you know, in a couple of months' time, we'll get you back. Yeah. And you know, British Land have just come out and they're, they're kind of sort of saying, they're calling, almost calling the bottom for the prime London office market as well, saying, they think that they could it could rebound and there's plenty of demand there. Um, and we've had various people on the podcast in the last few months talking about property um, and finding a way. And, and, and then things are ticking over. So I don't know, just something to watch. I think there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. Um, but it'd be, it'd be an interesting space if, if sentiment starts to turn, because there are, particularly in the investment trust space, lots of property um, trusts trading well below the stated net asset value so um yeah definitely one that we'll we'll be keeping an eye on and of course you know when you're talking about all this economic data that's coming out it's backward looking whereas you know investors are very much focused on the future and looking to spot opportunities so uh, i think it's it's fascinating to hear what company directors and CEOs have to say about the outlook for their company. But again, they're thinking short term and they're also trying to manage expectation in some cases. Um, but it's utterly fascinating. Um, managing expectation, I think, um, could be one way to describe the warning from Stellantis um, today, which has made huge headlines. And, and we couldn't wrap this bit up without talking about um, this big warning from one of the world's biggest car makers. Um, you might not know the name Stellantis. It's only been around a couple of years, but you will know the cars that it makes makes Vauxhall, Peugeot, Citroën, Fiat, absolutely massive and really quite crucial for the UK car industry as well. Now, when the original Brexit deal was struck in 2020, Stellantis said, yeah, OK, you know, looking at that, um, we can see a way to continue to manufacture electric vehicles. They've got two um, locations, Ellesmere Port and Luton. Fast forward to 2023, and the playing field has completely changed. Your costs have increased massively, and crucially, we have not seen the real go-ahead yet of the manufacture of batteries in Europe and in the UK. In fact, in the UK, there have been huge setbacks. So Stellantis is now saying, and, and this was in a submission to a Commons inquiry into electric vehicle manufacture in the UK, 
they have said that they need the government to look again at this Brexit deal because things change on the 1st of January 2024. From then, 45% of an electric car has to be manufactured. The, the raw materials, the parts have to come from the EU or the UK. If they don't, then there will be a 10% tariff applied um, to cars manufactured in the UK and then sold in the EU. And that, in terms of competitiveness, it's just not doable, say Stellantis. Um, and they just don't feel that uh, 45% is doable either because, you know, the 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 cheap stuff is manufactured still in Asia. And if it wants to be competitive on price and not penalise the consumer, then it wants the government to try and look again. Now, the government has said that it will, Kemi Badenoch is, is going to go and have talks. Um, but there is another cliff edge coming on the 1st of January uh, 2027 when um Car batteries, electric car batteries, have to be completely made in the EU or the UK in order to be free of tariffs. So, you know, this is a huge industry. Hundreds of thousands of people are employed in the UK, either directly in manufacturing or as part of the supply chain. So getting this right is crucially important. We know that the government is committed to um, electric vehicle manufacturer, to the manufacture of electric batteries and all those associated technologies. But this is a really tricky point for the UK. We've got the inflation reduction in the US effectively dragging in huge amounts of investment. We've got the EU trying to you know, go toe to toe with the US. And just this week, we had um, Tesla boss, everybody's favorite, Elon Musk, meeting with the French President Emmanuel Macron about building a Tesla gigafactory in France. The expectation was that Jaguar Land Rover would build a great big gigafactory here in the UK. Now, ja Jaguar Land Rover is being wooed by Spain. So there is a big question mark over the future of automobile manufacture here in the UK at the moment. Um, so we just thought it was worth mentioning uh, before we moved on. Now, we quite often get people on the podcast to talk about specific sectors, um, whether that might be something like technology or it might be someone who invests in a certain part of the world, um, for example, something investing in Europe. We thought it would be useful to hear from a fund manager who actually invests across the board. Yes, Sunil Krishnan is head of multi-asset funds at Aviva Investors, which means he invests in bonds and equities and invests across the world too. Laura Suter caught up with him. Sunil, the traditional portfolio model was to have 60% equities, 40% in bonds. But that feels like maybe that's a bit of an outdated view now. What do you think? Well, I think even before the last... A uh, year or two, we moved on to a point where, as as well as thinking about other other assets investors could use, there'd also been the question of is sixty forty the right mix. And so, what we've seen, particularly in the UK, is the kind of rise of risk profiling. So, essentially, you, you try and get an idea as an investor, or if you're an advisor, then 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 try and understand from your client what's the appetite for risk. Is it more the cautious end or more of the, the aggressive end? And so you might then put people into funds that are quite similar in terms of the building blocks they use, but just in different weights over time. So that's been around for a while. And I guess the way that that model's been challenged 
is particularly thinking about last year. I mean, last year was quite a tough time, particularly the first half, both equities and bonds. Uh, and therefore, the idea that bonds are a bit more defensive in nature, a bit more stable, they will bail you out when there are tougher times for equities didn't really seem to work. Now, in, in terms of what caused that, I think it's worth understanding that in order to have a view about whether that's something we're going to be dealing with permanently. I think it was really the shock of having rising inflation in a way that meant the central bank wasn't going to be able to ride to the rescue every time you saw a wobble in the equity market. Because we've been perhaps a bit spoiled as investors over the last uh, five or uh, 10 years, maybe even longer than that, uh, in terms of every time there was a decline in equity markets, concerns about growth, that they would be cutting interest rates or uh, quantitative easing buying bonds. And, and so the real question was, well, what if we can't rely on that anymore? Now, I'm sure we'll talk about it more. I don't think the outlook needs to be uh, as bleak as that, but I think it's worth saying that that is a scenario which we'll always need to keep an eye out for in the future uh, in terms of whether that is a, a risk. And perhaps now we're a little bit more uh, older and wise uh, in terms of the, the potential for that to arise as a, as a risk to that 60-40 or, or other blends of equities and bonds. And so what won't be the outlook for bond markets, um, I guess in two scenarios, what's your base case for the rest of this year, but also what would be the impact on bond markets if we didn't have that, you know, policy riding to the rescue, Bank of England riding to the rescue, what does that mean for investors? Yeah, I think in some ways we're already seeing the consequences of that in the sense that we're still talking about base rate rises in the UK at the time we're having this conversation when I think in normal circumstances we might be looking at some of the weakness that, for example, we've seen in the housing market, maybe a little bit of softness in terms of uh, confidence and spending and saying, well, you know, shouldn't the Bank of England be looking to cut rates? And if it wasn't for inflation, I think they would all already be there. Now, having said that, I think the fact that we're still talking about rising interest rates doesn't mean, oh, well, we're still stuck in the 2022 environment. Uh, one of the key points is the scale of interest rate rises that we're talking about has really changed compared to last year. Last year, it was uh, rates might need to rise by two, three, four percentage points, whereas now we're maybe talking about them needing to add on an additional quarter of a percentage point. And I think that's a much more calm environment for the bond market. We sometimes look at the volatility of bonds as a as an asset class, say, well, that's telling you something about the degree of uncertainty and even panic out there. And I don't think we're going to see the same kind of volatility up and down daily moves in bonds that we saw last year. And that in turn, I think, as well as being better news for, for bonds themselves, I think is also probably going to be providing a little bit of support for the equity market as well. Okay. And so you've kind of touched on interest rates there and, and the path for rate hikes looks pretty uncertain. And, and I think it's just been changing quite rapidly. We had a point not so long ago where people, market commentators thought that that was it for rate rises. Now with that stubborn inflation, we're seeing more calls for more hikes possibly going into the summer. Um, what's your kind of outlook for that? But also how does that impact how you're investing within your portfolios? Well, I think the base case has to be that it's a little too early to say there will be no more rate rises. And there's also been quite a big debate in financial markets because both for the UK, but also for the US, for example, uh, markets seem to be discounting a path of rate cuts in the future, uh, starting this year and then carrying on into next year. People are concerned that maybe in both cases, there will be disappointment that maybe there will be further interest rate rises and then they won't come down so quickly. 
I actually think investors are quite open-minded to this possibility. Uh, what's happening in financial markets is that that projected future path is more splitting the difference between rates stay higher for longer, but another scenario where rates have to come down quite sharply because we we enter more recessionary conditions. So in that sense, I think rates that go high and stay high isn't necessarily a huge problem for financial markets by themselves. It will have some challenges elsewhere in the real economy. For example, companies may need to roll over their financing. Uh, everyone will either themselves uh, have a mortgage rollover coming up or will know somebody else who needs to refinance. I think that's going to be uh, a, a challenge as it has been already. But overall, in a way, I think our economy and our society has started to adjust to life with higher interest rates, which is just as well, because I think the base case is that they don't come down that quickly. And so how does that translate into that kind of higher rates for longer, maybe not such a quick cutting cycle? How does that translate into the, the decisions you're making within the portfolio? What kind of investments are you preferring in that environment? Well, interestingly, we came into this conversation talking about the challenge to the 60-40 in terms of is it challenging to own equities and bonds. But actually, in our portfolios, we're probably a bit more exposed than normal to both equities and bonds. And I suppose the thinking on the equity side is we came into this year with there being an almost mainstream consensus that we were in the middle of a UK recession, in the middle of a European recession. Uh, the US surely headed that way. And actually, since then, economic activity, and indeed, now that we've had uh, reporting for the first quarter, company profitability, I think, has, has really surprised those expectations by being a bit more resilient than everybody expected. So in that sense, I think for as long as companies are still able to generate cash flows, I think that's still a reasonable environment uh, for uh, equities. And indeed, equities have had quite a good start to the year, but they've been very unloved. There have been very few investors who have been willing to go out and say, this is why stocks look like such great value. And in that sense, I think that natural pessimism that we came into the year with is something that provides fuel for equities to continue to perform. On the bond side, it might seem strange to say, well, we might see further rises in cash interest rates because that's normally bad news for government bonds where you're fixing your money, locking it away for a period of time. And if cash interest rates are rising, there's, if you like, an opportunity cost. Why, why would I lock my money into a bond? But actually, you get to a point in the tightening cycle. And again, I think this is an important change from where we were even six months ago, where investors are starting to see signs of those higher interest rates taking effect. And a, a good example of that was the uh, crisis in uh, parts of the pensions industry in the UK last year, parts of uh, the small and regional bank sector in the United States this year. These are examples of where you can't keep raising interest rates without there being some kind of knock-on effect uh, in terms of financial stability or economic growth. And actually, that's an environment where I think bond investors can now say, well, look, I understand that cash interest rates are rising, but I'm still quite keen to have this protective quality that I get from owning gilts in the UK or, or, or treasury bonds uh, from the US government. And, and so put these things together, I think you could actually continue to see small rises in interest rates, but still do okay in terms of equity and bond investing. And, and for us, that's a change. I mean, I think about times over the last couple of years when we have been more cautious and taking money away from bonds or away from equities or both. And it does feel as though we potentially have turned a little bit of a corner now. And so then if we kind of come away from monetary policy stuff and look at more of the equity market specific things that we've seen this year. So that tech slowdown um, that we've seen over the kind of past year, 
um, and then compounded by the recent kind of banking mini crisis. How have you been navigating that? And, and does it change your outlook for that kind of tech or finance sector going forward? I think in terms of tech, I'm always a big fan of learning from your mistakes. And I think back to the summer of 2020, when for me, uh, we had started to see recovery in the equity market, uh, perhaps as, as people felt some relief that there was a coordinated government policy uh, globally that would perhaps help to stabilize the economy. And we were also seeing a lot of help from the central bank. But at that point, my feeling was all the same tech companies, particularly the ones that are really dependent on advertising spend, so the likes of Alphabet with its Google platform or, or, or Meta and, and Facebook, that they are very dependent on advertising spend. They would prove themselves to be as cyclical as, as any other company. Now, in the end, I was wrong about that. I think part of the reason was some of that support that was coming through, particularly on the fiscal side, really helped companies. But I think the other reason was just the priorities that businesses, particularly smaller businesses, placed on their ad spend with Google or uh, with Facebook, that actually they were willing to cut almost anything else, uh, be it staff, be it uh, capital investment, as long as they could keep their profile with their online advertising. So, but uh, brutally speaking, I got that wrong. Now, I, I think in a similar way, a lot of us looked at the reporting that some of these companies produced at the end of last year. So Q4 reporting, which took place earlier this year. And, the, uh, and, and at that stage, I think uh, we were seeing some signs of weakness, some signs of slowing in terms of that advertising spend. And a lot of us, including me, said, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the big one. Uh, after all, we have been talking about recessionary conditions. But then you look at what they've actually managed to do in uh, the first quarter of this year, which they've just been reporting. And again, they've actually managed to do pretty well in terms of overall profitability and growth in revenues. And I think really what that shows is these companies are very good at reinvention, uh, they can, if they want, simply pull back on the degree of investing that they're doing and provide a significant boost to profits that way. And we've seen some signs of that uh, from a number of uh, of the tech companies. So anyway, uh, I, I suppose once bitten, twice shy. And my feeling is we shouldn't underestimate the power of these companies to generate profits. Now, what have we done in practice? I think one of the things that we've been doing in portfolios is taking another look at the US equity market. We have, since the start of the year, slightly increased our allocations to the US. Uh, and while investors show some concerns about uh, valuations, for example, I think if you're in a more stable environment for cash interest rates for government bonds than we were last year, I think the valuations are less of a concern. Now, turning to financials, uh, I think there one needs to be a little bit more cautious, uh, particularly when we look at the US banking sector. I think the reality is it is a very, very... Um, fragmented banking sector. There are thousands of uh, uh, banks that are listed on the stock market in the United States, uh, which is extraordinary, really. But just something that should give us caution in terms of saying we understand the full extent of, of the challenges and the problems. I think it would be fair to say the market has done a good job of spotting real weakness in terms of dependence on the more flighty deposits um, or concerns over the quality of the asset management that essentially allows a, a bank to generate profit. And I think it'd be premature to say, right, that's all done. I think we will probably see more difficulties from smaller US banks. But I think there are some companies that probably end up doing well on a more selective basis. It's clearly so far been a good time to be a large bank uh, like a JP Morgan, uh, who have actually had deposits coming in that they weren't expecting because there's been a flight to, flight to larger, more established institutions. 
that I think should help them in terms of their earnings power. And again, we had evidence in the first quarter. The other uh, area to point out is the European banking sector, actually. It's not often that we talk about European banks and resilience in the same uh, breath, but actually they are in a much better position from a capital perspective. And I think what some of the concerns over essentially unaffected banks like Deutsche Bank showed earlier uh, in the year is that actually these companies are more resilient and quite differentiated from some of the real problem cases. So there may be some interesting opportunities there too. And so if we look ahead for the next six months, I guess, towards the, to the end of this year, um, what's your biggest source of optimism and what's your biggest concern in markets? Well, in some ways, I think the biggest source of optimism is really just reflecting on how much pessimism we came into the year with in the sense that uh, I mentioned this point that this has been an unloved rally in the equity market. And I think that's always uh, a helpful position to be investing in. It's a helpful time to be uh, putting money to work uh, when uh, you know that there are others who are very concerned about doing so and therefore have not been bidding up prices aggressively. Now, we've seen a decent start to the equity market uh, performance this year, but viewed in the context of the last 12 to 18 months, you wouldn't say that um, equities have, have raced away in terms of prices and valuation. So I would say it's actually that natural concern that uh, both investors have, but also companies in terms of their willingness to go and spend aggressively is, is curtailed at the moment. I think that natural caution is actually something that strangely is a cause for optimism. In terms of where the risks are, I think we do need to be aware that there are some potential knock-on effects uh, from both higher interest rates and uh, the banking crisis in the US. Uh, where they come together, uh, I suppose, is uh, we don't know exactly how um, different parts of the economy and the financial markets have organized themselves in terms of uh, their financing profiles, uh, their dependence on continual access to cheap debt. And I think we're in a different world now where capital markets will be open to people who want to borrow and so will the banks, but maybe not at the rates that they're used to. And therefore, I think we will need to just be careful to try and understand uh, who's going to find that a challenge. Uh, when we look at actually some of the more complex markets like private markets, private equity, uh, uh, commercial uh, property, commercial real estate in the United States. These are areas which did really well for a long time. They're not necessarily all mainstream investments, but they're ones that are deeply embedded in our economy. And if we see difficulties there because of refinancing, it can have knock-on effects to the health of companies that have large numbers of workers and so on. So I, we have to watch that very closely. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today. So that's Laura talking to Sunil Krishna from Aviva Investors. We are almost done for this episode of the Money and Markets pod, but we're going to end, and this is quite depressing actually to end with, but you know, it, it sort of ties into the state of the consumer at the moment. It's the latest financial live survey by the Financial Conduct Authority. It does not make great reading, Dan. No, it doesn't. And it's quite, you know, it's quite alarming, really. It's over three million more people are struggling to keep up with bills and payments. To go back to May 2022, that was 7.8 million people were uh, reportedly struggling to, to meet sort of bills and credit card payments. Um, but now that figure is now at 10.9 million people. Um, you know, this is quite a serious problem. I think failing to make 
payments can drag people further into debt. It also can affect their credit rating. So obviously that could come back to sort of bite them in the future if they need to borrow again. Um, and I think there's an angle here on anxiety. People in debt obviously worried about what's going on, but actually they're, they're sort of increasingly facing aggressive debt collection practices, you know, getting hounded by lenders who you know keep calling them to say, give me my money back. So I think the FCA said in its survey that around half of UK adults had felt more anxious or stress due to the rising cost of living, uh, you know, in, in January when they did the survey than six months earlier. So I think when you sort of take these things into consideration, it's perhaps no surprise that the regulator wants lenders to do more to actually support borrowers. Yeah, I mean, I was amazed that, you know, over a quarter of people are saying that they're losing sleep over money worries. You've got people um, who were responding to this survey saying that they were having to um, take out a credit card or use a credit card in order to just pay for things like fuel for the car or to buy groceries. And lots and lots of respondents were saying that they were cutting back on their insurance um, because it was the only way that they could think of, of, you know, trying to have a little bit of extra money, trying to claw back a little bit more in order to, uh, to keep themselves afloat. And all of that, of course, then plays into consumer confidence. It plays into how much money people are spending in businesses right around the country. So, you know, generally this plays into the financial health of of, uh, of the economy. Um, and on that note, <laughs> it, it seems quite a dour note to end on. Maybe we should go back to talking about Air, that brilliant film, because at least that was up it. But... That is all for this week's Money and Markets pod. Um, if you are an avid podcast listener, you might be interested in another pod that Laura and I do for our Money Matters campaign. It is aimed at helping get more women into investing, but it is really something that everyone can listen to. And this week's episode is all about lifestyle creep, which I think is quite timely considering you were talking about posh watches and uh, and diamonds. Um, it, it's something that happens over time, of course, as your income goes up, you suddenly find that you can't poss possibly cope without a five-star all-inclusive holiday somewhere swanky every year or just the five streaming services to keep everybody happy. You can find that wherever you found this pod. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Next week, Danny and Laura will have all the, the week's markets news. And I'll be talking to Julian Cook from T. Rowe Price about investing in US companies. Until then, thanks very much for listening. Catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.